Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. I want to thank the, sorry, just one thing, the stem cell program here in San Diego for inviting me. And I really look forward to um, this day, um, just discussions and ethical discussions and ideas um, around this research and a lot of the things also in it. In our field, also some of the things Alison has been pioneering for many, many years. So, what I'll try to take you a little bit um, through somewhat of a journey, perhaps some of it was intentional, some unintentional, of really understanding what is a stem cells and how can we reach the goals we want to use for stem cells for regenerative medicine and um, what are the different paths and challenges I think that facing us after 30 years since derivation of ES cells and uh, 15 years from IPS cells. Really our research and field starts with this question of you know, how is an embryo formed from a single cell and a lot of the, trying to understand a lot of the dramatic, this drama of early development, how an embryo starts with a single cell, develops into, towards the blastocyst, which is 64 cells, then implantation happens, you have the lineage decision, you have some cells going towards the trophoblast, other cells becoming to the, what's called the embryo proper, uh, the epiblast, the germ cells, which are going to be the sperm and the eggs are already actually set aside, um, and then in the next generation, the germ cells, once they mature to egg and sperm, that's how this cycle of, of rejuvenation in a way uh, happens again. And we try to ask a lot of questions about what is these pluripotent and totipotent states? How are they similar to germ cells? How are um, the fate of trophoblasts, the placenta versus the embryo differ? What are the epigenetic changes, the molecular pathways acting during these stages? And as you can imagine, these are very hard questions to follow because first you have very rapidly uh, rapid changes happening. You have very little material to sample. Even in the age of single-cell biology, you can do single-cell RNA-seq, but a lot of single-cell stuff we cannot do, like proteomics, metabolomics, and um, a lot of these questions. And of course, we're interested in the cross-evolutionary differences. I mean, if you talk about humans uh, or primates in general, uh, it's very hard to look at these stages, which are very, very critical in development. And to get everyone on the same page, embryonic stem cells were derived originally from the blastocyst, uh, the 64-cell stage of, of the mouse embryo. And I want to remind everyone that pluripotency is an embryonic stem cells are an artifact. It's a very useful artifact because these stem cells exist for one and two days during development. And we maintain them under these states by giving them the right cytokines. For example, we'll talk in the mouse, inhibition of MIC-ERK signaling or stimulating wind signaling promotes these stabilizing these cells. So this is very different from the adult stem cells like blood or intestine that we have in our bodies and adult. We're talking about a transient state that occurs in development very early on and then it fades away. But actually by giving the right cytokines, we can just keep the cells uh, propagating in the petri dish in that state. And later on, the discovery from Yamanaka, who showed really that you can take somatic cells like skin cells or, and reprogram them and awaken pluripotency in them by giving different transcription factors. And this is what we call induced pluripotent stem cells. So this became kind of a new angle, a new take on pluripotency. And the iPS cell discovery uh, really made a major breakthrough because... If you think the, the scenario that the, the, the holy grail perhaps in the, in the field, if you think of a patient who needs an organ transplant, 
a major challenge in modern society is really finding organ donors. Even if you find a donor, the DNA is never going to be matching and you deal with rejections and so forth. So really the, the fact that you can take a skin cell and give four transcription factors uh, and without the using of eggs or donated embryos, you can just go to become, make the cells go back to become a pluripotent stem cells um, offers a great challenge, a great uh, uh, overcoming a great challenge uh, because these iPS cells are going to be genetically identical to the donor um, and regardless of the age of the donor actually. And today we have a lot of um, we can make genetically unmodified iPS cells, and I think they really can get their quality exactly to the embryo-derived stem cells in the dish. And just to quickly um, also mention, the iPS cell technology, of course, has great importance not only for organ transplantation, but also for modeling diseases. Um, we uh, would like the field has been great, making great progress in taking biopsies from patients with different genetic diseases. Uh, let's talk about ALS, for example, and making iPS cells that carry these relevant mutations. And we can start asking how can, you know, what happens, for example, to neurons in this disease, what stress, what is the gene expression patterns, and try to understand in human relevant data um, what, uh, in, in this disease. And this is what we call a uh, disease modeling platform uh, that is, I would say, as equally important as our goals for transplantation. But I would say... Uh, modestly say, I think it's, it's quite surprising. Um, so any iPS cells, as you know, we must, for transplantation, we must be able to differentiate it forward into the desired cell type. So if you inject just the pluripotent cells uh, under the skin or, let's say, in a lung, it's not going to learn from its neighbors and become the lung cells. But actually, if you do that, it's going to give you a benign tumor, just a mishmash of differentiated cells. So we must work away to differentiate the cells in the dish into the specific cell types and only then uh, transplant them. And I would say, surprisingly, we've solved quite well the, to take a skin cell all the way back to pluripotency, but differentiation has proven an extremely difficult task. Um, I would say um, you know, about 2,150 cell types exist in the, in the body. We can make authentic cells, I want to say, uh, very few of them. Uh, if you think, for example, um, we can make dopaminergic neurons quite well, uh, and there are, that's why perhaps there are clinical trials uh, starting and try to treat them in Parkinson's. But a lot of uh, cell types, for example, blood stem cells, there are no protocols to make authentic hematopoietic bone marrow stem cells so far in mouse or in humans for over 30 years. Um, a lot of the insulin-producing beta cells, um, there is great progress, but a lot of the, actually the protocols, the cells that are being made uh, secrete insulin, but not exactly in response to glucose, which is a major caveat. And this is just an example. So, and I would just generally say that it, it's, it's quite a challenge. And there are, for each cell type, there are many labs trying to really optimize the protocols. And usually we're trying to mimic the embryo. The embryo is the best organ-making entity and try to mimic the different stages of going from a stem cell in the embryo to the desired mature cell type. So after this introduction, we, we will start talking about pluripotent stem cells and what do they represent. And um, really, as the initial embryonic stem cells, if we talk about the mouse that were derived, as I mentioned, they represent more the blastocyst, which is the pre-implantation stage, and we call it the naive pluripotent stem cell state. Um, but um, 
seminal studies in 2007 showed that actually as stem cells can be also derived from the embryo that is after implantations. So what is called day 5.5 in the mouse embryo, post-implantation. And these cells depend on different signaling, uh, FGF and activin, and you can see they're more flat, they're more, more epithelialized. And these are called epiblast stem cells. And the terminology that really was um, picked up, you could call them naive and prime pluripotent stem cells. So you, what it tells you basically that you have a different state of stem cells and they can represent different stages of development. So you have what I mentioned, the naive stem cells, which was the first uh, isolated, representing the early stages. And then you have another, or another side of the spectrum, uh, which is the prime pluripotent cells. So it's still, they are still pluripotent. They have not differentiated, but they're about to differentiate. And papers, for, uh, my group has been studying this, and a lot of work from many, many excellent groups have really led us to understand a lot of the molecular differences between them. Uh, for example, the prime cells are more advanced. So, for example, in females, the X chromosome inactivation has already occurred in the prime pluripotent state. Uh, if you look at DNA methylation, uh, which is very low in the inner cell mass to kind of erase all memory, it's increased in these prime pluripotent cells. And functionally, usually the early, the naive pluripotent cells are the very good ones when we eject them into a blastocyst and put them in a surrogate mice then they can give rise to very high contribution, what we call chimeric animals. So they really have a great developmental potential. And what I want to highlight is that, that this pluripotency, this spectrum between the naive and the primed, this is about the cell state. So it does, it's not about the source of the cells. You can, it can be an embryo of cells. It can be an iPS cell. Uh, the state is dictated by the medium. So if the medium captures the cells in a naive state, they will be naive IPS cells or ES cells. If the prime media is the one you use, it's going to stabilize the prime pluripotent state. So it's really all based on the media. And if you switch the media, it takes between three days to seven days, and the cells adapt a different state of, 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 of development. And when I just give a brief example, when we started this, uh, asking a lot of questions, uh, we were very curious. We knew a lot in the mouse about these early classical naive embryonic stem cells. And we asked, um, well, are there specific regulators only for the prime pluripotent stem cells? Or in other words, like the notion at the time was, well, you know, okay, naive cells are domed, prime cells are flat, why should we care? How different are they? And uh, Abed Mansour was actually a, a former uh, postdoc here at UCSD at the SOC, uh, started asking other specific regulators for the prime pluripotent stem cells. And he took these reporter lines that have this OCT4 GFP, and uh, they lose the GFP when the cells differentiate. And he knocked down different candidate epigenetic regulators that we're interested in. And you can see highlighted in gray, he was able to show that there are specific epigenetic regulators that if you knock them down in the naive cells, the naive pluripotent cells are fine, actually very stable. But if he knocks them down uh, in the primed state, which is the blue columns, you can see that the OCT4-GFP levels goes down. So there are regulators that are specific only for the prime pluripotent state. And another thing, if you note in common of them, that they were all some kind of epigenetic repressors. So for example, DNMT1, which makes DNA methylation, which is repressive, it is needed in the prime pluripotent state. DGCR8 and DICER, which make microRNAs and their repressors, they are needed in the prime pluripotent cells. 
EED and SUS12, they're polycomb, an epigenetic repressive complex. It's needed in the prime pluripotent state. So that also started to give us an idea that this naive pluripotent state is in a way we call it, it needs kind of has a minimal epigenetic governance in the sense that it's kind of, a, think of it as like a, a, our yeast ancestor, if we want to say, that it doesn't, it doesn't need DNA methylation, it doesn't need microRNAs, it doesn't need a lot of these fancy mechanisms to stay alive, but it needs them for differentiation. And at, in this study, just to give you an overview, we focus on RNA methylation, uh, which is an, also a repressive mechanism. So RNA methylation leads to degradation of the RNA. And if you see in this summarizing scheme, what we found out, if you look on the left, when we have the naive pluripotent cells, and you have naive specific transcript-line nano are methylated, so when we remove RNA methylation, these pluripotency genes become very stable. So we call, the cells become very stable, we call it hyper-naive. So it push, tilts the balance to stability of the pluripotent cells. If we take pluripotent cells and make them primed, so they're about to differentiate, then you have these lineage commitment factors like GATA4 and SOX17 that are methylated, and then you remove the methylation, then these lineage factors become hyper-expressed, and then the cells differentiate. And what was very striking for us in this case, that this was the first example that shows that the same perturbation actually has complete opposite effect on the naive versus prime pluripotent cells, and showing that there is some kind of switch that can be very dramatic. But this also started us propagating us more to ask questions about human pluripotent cells because knockouts for human cells for these enzymes did not exist. And every time actually we try to knock it out, let's say with a CRISPR, we will knock out one allele versus the other allele will we'll always get just only an in-frame mutation, suggesting that human stem cells, like the mouse primed cells, need these enzymes. And this really let us ask even more questions. What we suspected is, why are human conventional stem cells are different from the mouse stem cells? And as you can see, human stem cells are very similar looking to the mouse stem cells. They are prime. They are depending on FGF and nodal. They're not identical. I don't want to get into that at the moment. And for many years, it was thought that we should just accept these differences between the mouse and the human because the human ES cells were derived from the blastocyst. So it's, if we start from the blastocyst, it must reflect the state of the blastocyst. But as I showed you before, that may not be true because the, what you stabilize, which state is based on the media. So if you don't have the right mix of media for the naive cells, you could be, in theory, the cells differentiating and be things stabilized at the prime pluripotent state. So there is a question in the end, is there a naive pluripotent state? Perhaps no, maybe there is a, it's a mouse, uh, it's a rodent-specific phenomenon, maybe we will never be able to isolate it. And at the time, we knew that the mouse conditions that were used were not sufficient, so if you put these media, the cells on human cells would differentiate. And briefly, um, we started asking, can we make human naive pluripotent cells? And in our opinion, what's really the split between these, if we look at this as neighborhoods, the naive and the primed, the split for us is how they respond to the block of FGF ERK signaling. So naive cells, if you block make, uh, ERK signaling, they are stable, they're pluripotent, versus the primed stem cells, uh, they differentiate if you block make an ERK. And we started asking really, can we make human pluripotent stem cells that are stable, they're OCT4 positive, when you block ERK signaling. 
And this was published back in 2013. And what we found is that you can take the mouse conditions, these what we call them the mouse to ILF, and add more inhibitors. So PKC inhibitor, P38 pathway inhibitor, and activin, and you can stabilize without transgenes, without feeders, cells that are OCT4 positive and have ERK signaling uh, blocked. And I have, I must say, a conflict of interest um, that this media is commercialized, so I have a conflict of interest, uh, but also, you know, I have a mortgage, you can feel free to buy it and, and support it financially. <laughs> but after that, there are a lot of questions, you know, a lot of studies came out and um, uh, that said, okay, we have many ways to make different naive pluripotent cells uh, from very leading group, describe different recipes. And as you can imagine, everybody was claiming how great his cells are and how awful everybody else's cells are. But really, this was very exciting because it's telling us what are the, the pathways are at play. Uh, and what we concluded from all these studies is that it was quite obvious that none of the cells are good enough. And a lot of the cell types that were being described that have a very nice gene expression similar to the human blastocyst, they were actually all chromosomally abnormal. So they would get really chromosomal abnormalities by 10 passages, 100%. They would also have an immediate global loss of DNA imprinting. And as such, they couldn't really differentiate well or make teratomas. So you can imagine this is not a very productive way for using such cells for therapy and differentiation, which we are after. So we started asking, can we make naive pluripotent cells that are better uh, with a lot of qualities and that are also um, genetically and epigenetically more stable? And this is what we wanted to call kind of an enhanced media. But the challenge when you come to, to do, how do you do this in humans, we don't have a functional screen. How do you really define function what's a naive pluripotent cells? In the mouse, typically, I would argue that any stem cells, if you inject it into a blastocyst and it makes a mouse in a surrogate mother, that's good enough to prove that it is naive. Obviously, I cannot and should not, and nobody should ever do such an experiment with the human stem cells. So when the question, what is the other functional screen? And this is what we thought, perhaps the work from Abid and Shai is a good functional screen, which was, as I told you, the quality of naive cells that they can live and survive without DNA methylation or RNA methylation. So we wanted to test for functionally, can we stabilize naive pluripotent cells in humans now with a higher stringent criteria, is to be able to survive without these enzymes. So what we did, we built a, a pluripotent lines that are engineered, that basically when we give doxycycline, we shut off the expression of the RNA methyltransferase MTTL3. Uh, you just give doxycycline, as you can see, and then the, the, the protein goes down. If you remove dox, the expression goes back up. We did the same thing for the DNA methylation, by the way, and the same results. And we started screening what would happen to the cells if we give doxycycline. And as you can see, the primed cells, if you give doxycycline, the colonies disappear. You only have the fibroblasts. Naive media we published, other people published, all of them cannot survive when you add doxycycline, as you can see in the bottom lane of the figure. So we asked, okay, let's do a screen now. Let's take whatever media we had and try to add stimulators or inhibitors of other signaling pathways and see if we can make pluripotent cells survive under these conditions. And we were actually lucky and surprised to find a very strong hit, which is the add of tankerase inhibitor small molecule. So it's a WINT inhibitor that if we add it, the cells can survive, remain pluripotent, 
while ERK inhibition and without these enzymes of methylation. Now, this was surprising because on the one way, I'm trying to imitate the mouse, and the mouse needs wind stimulation. So we put this molecule in the mouse called Chiron, which inhibits an inhibitor of wind. And here we're actually saying, well, you need to inhibit wind. And we went back to the media that we had because we were including this wind stimulator called uh, Cheer, and we used uh, this fax reporter, OCT4GFP, that is only positive in the naive pluripotent cells. And we can see that actually, when you reduce the wind stimulator, the GFP signal becomes stronger and stronger. And to really prove that genetically that wind signaling is bad for naive pluripotency, because always small molecules can have a side effect, we had to do knockouts. So we made human knockouts for beta-catenin, and you can see that the wild-type cells in the naive media, when we remove the wind, uh, the tanker as inhibitor, they become flattened, which is consistent with being primed. And then when we make beta-catenin knockout cells, these cells actually remain dome-shaped and naive, and we validated this at, at many different levels. So this shows us that actually there are differences in the pathways which we do not fully understand. And one other comment I want to make is also in our original publication, we described that activin was supporting human naive pluripotency, and a lot of uh, suspicion, including from us, was raised because in the mouse, activin is a major priming effect. And as you can see here with this reporter, you can see clearly when we give higher activin levels, the GFP levels are increased, meaning that the cells are naive. And today it's consensus in the field that everybody's having actually activin supports human naive pluripotency. And what is nice is that when we have single cell RNA-seq data of human blastocysts that came up later, it actually showed that the human uh, inner cell mass, but not the mouse, has active in expression. So at least what we're seeing here is a little bit getting some support to what is happening in vivo, that actually in the human you have active in, but not in the mouse. So this was good, and just to summarize, actually we have a, a, a media that mean, uh, maintains human pluripotent cells naive, even, even xenofree conditions, um, uh, that we stabilized it. It actually also works on, on, on monkey cells. It's very, very conserved uh, from Brazil's macaque uh, and, other, um, and other primates. And just to briefly say that when we look at gene expression analysis in our conditions, you can see that our naive cells on the left cluster were the inner cell mass and naive cells from different groups. And on the right is the prime cells in red represent more post-implantation epiblast. And you can see if you, in the middle, in the circle, if you give wind stimulation, so the cells are somewhere in between, which was what, what was happening to many groups, including us. And finally, which is very basic, but these cells, they can, when we inject them subcutaneously, they make teratomas, they differentiate into mesoderm, endoderm, and ectoderm. Uh, and they have chromosomal stability that is equivalent to what we see with primed stem cells. And I will talk about it that later that actually also they were quite easily able to make placental stem cells and yolk stem cells, which we will get to later. So after all this talk, um, still remain with the questions of naive and primed, uh, who cares? Why is this important? And I don't have yet an answer, but I want to highlight one study that shows that this might be very, very important. And this is the work from uh, Mitinori Saito in 2011. He was the first really able to show that the, uh, make a protocol to make primordial germ cells. So these are the progenitors of sperm and egg in the mouse. And if you look about why did he succeed, he had to do a, the protocol very carefully. 
he had to start with naive cells, which are ex- these cells exposed in ERK inhibition. He had to give them priming for FGF activin for 48 hours, like similar to what happens in vivo. And then he gives mix of cytokines, mainly BMP4, which is known really to push them to become PGCs. And you can see in the fact spots here, the BLIMP1, Stella, these are reporters for PGCs. You can see he gets these populations of germ cells. He can take them, inject them into an ovary or in, in, a, in a testicle, and these cells will continue to make mature eggs uh, and, and sperm. And first, when, when this paper came out, many st- people started to reproduce, try to reproduce it with human stem cells and failed. And you know, the thought was, well, maybe different timing, maybe you need different BMPs. But we thought, well, if you look carefully, he has to start with naive cells in ERK inhibition. And at the time, we had these conditions that we are growing cells with ERK inhibition. And we asked, what if we reproduce the protocol with naive cells? And it doesn't matter if it's the old version or the new version, it worked right away. If you take naive human cells, you give two days of priming, you give BMP4, you can get PGCs within six days, and we validated them. This was work with Azim Sorani. However, this doesn't work with conventional human primed cells with this protocol. So this shows you, which we don't know why, the starting material has a critical influence on the success of the outcome that we are getting in these experiments. And the key questions which have not, well, we and others have not answered is why is starting with naive stem cells critical for the success of this protocol? Why do we have to go priming? Why, so we can't go directly to BMP4. And also, if you give priming for a very long time, like permanent FGF activin, you get zero percentage success. So in a way, if you want to kind of visualize this, we're talking about kind of windows of competence that happen from the cell as it goes through this journey. You have a window of competence during which the cells become responsive to BMP4, but this window goes away afterwards. And I want to highlight, if you don't this, do the sequence correct, you will get 0% differentiations. This is not about 40% and a 50% improvement, but this is a very black and white uh, outcome. And I want to say this is scary for us. Why? Because the germ cells differentiation, it's a very short journey. Okay? If you think you're trying to make hematopoietic stem cells, which, as I mentioned, nobody has been able to make hematopoietic stem cells, authentic ones, um, in mouse or human, you can imagine perhaps you have a much longer path and you might have maybe then 10 different windows of competence where you need to have the cytokine be activated at the right time, at the right magnitude. And if one of them does not happen, it might just have a very negative outcome on the differentiation. It could be that it is com- complete blockade of differentiation. It could be that you just get aberrant cells, which might be happening. A theory, we have no proof, but that is the thought we have. And this really brought us to face uh, the next challenge for us, which I'm telling you that I can toggle easily between naive and primed stem cells, and I can perturb them. But in the end, the outcome of whatever perturbation is going to be a stem cell-derived embryo, or which what we call a synthetic embryo or stem cell-derived embryo model. I want to be able to go in the Petri dish go from naive to primed, and then see what does that embryo look like after different perturbations. And we don't have that. But actually, the scenario is actually much worse because also we don't have that for natural embryos. So we can grow, I'll talk about it, we can grow embryos until the blastocyst stage, but actually we don't have systems to grow embryos from this 
egg cylinder epiblast and then move into an embryo outside the uterus. And so that was the obstacle we need to solve first because you would think, I think it's reasonable to assume if you want to grow first synthetic embryo models, you better know first how to grow a natural embryo and then use conditions to apply them on stem cells. So another point I want to ask, well, you could argue that we cannot good, have good quality differentiation because the stem cells we grow in the petri dish are not good enough. However, if you take pluripotent cells that are grown in the petri dish, inject them into another mouse embryo, put them into a surrogate mouse, make a chimera, you will get all cell types in there. You can get excellent hematopoietic stem cells. So the cells in the petri dish are not the problem. We are the problem. We are not able to mimic, have a good differentiation protocol in which we dictate cytokines, transcription factors one step after the other to get that cell type. And that was also another way we also think again, well, if we know the cells can do it, can we do this directly without having to use a surrogate embryo and a uterus? Can we do this outside the uterus? So this all then culminates into tackling the major problem, which is what we call the uterine barrier. And as you know, mammalian development happens inside the uterus. We can grow mouse embryos until the blastocyst stage, uh, which is great in mouse and humans, and that's why we have IVF therapies. But once you reach the IVF, the blastocyst, you have to implant it inside the uterus. Once the embryo enters the uterus, then you get this exciting drama of what we call gastrulation or organogenesis. So very quickly, the embryo starts getting, assuming the shape of the mouth, the egg cylinder in two days, and within three more days, it completes organ formation. And then the rest is basically maturation till birth. So mouse pregnancy is about 20 days. So 75% of these stages, we cannot grow them outside the uterus, which are what we are looking after. We want to see when organs form. And this is happening in the uterus, which is not transparent and not very accessible. And the solution was thinking, can we even grow mouse embryos one or two days more so we just can have a, a, an easier look at this? And I want to emphasize more about this uterine barrier is that, as I mentioned, we are un not only we're not able to grow the mouse embryos outside the uterus during these stages, but actually once you take the post-implantation mouse embryo out, you cannot put it back into another uterus. So it's kind of game over. You have to analyze it immediately. So if we're thinking of this, you know, the ideal experiment, I want to make a mutation of the embryo, and I want to watch the same embryo outside the uterus for over prolonged periods of time, we cannot do this even inside the uterus because we cannot put back the embryo. So it's a really tough challenge. And of course, you, the uterus, also if we want to talk about the environment and, and, and surrounding the embryo, it's very hard to control because it's happening in vivo. And as developmental biologists, we're very much interested in talking about organ understanding gastrulation. Um, and Lewis Wolpert, a very famous developmental biologist, uh, has this famous quote saying that you know, the most important day of our life is not when we are born, married, or die, but actually it's about gastrulation. Because if you, normal gastrulation leads to healthy birth without birth defects. But the, the questions we're trying to ask is even more fundamental, which is, can we have a situation in mammalians, or at least in one mammalian, where we can capture the gastrulation outside the uterus? Or is it that the mammalian uterus is absolutely needed to dictate the shape of the embryo and correct 
correctly assuming morphogenesis? And can we even capture good gastrulation that will proceed toward organogenesis, which was not known in mammalians? And I want to emphasize, because eventually we're trying to make this from early ES cells and IPS cells, it was very critical for us to be able to start from pre-gastrulation, very early stage embryos, as I will show you. There's been very great research done before attempts on trying to grow mouse embryos outside the uterus. Uh, the earliest study we could find was back to 1934. I think Dennis New and Patrick Tam has done uh, some um, very great work in, in between the 60s and the 70s and then between the 90s and the, until 2000. But I would say that the research was done was still has limited success. And what they were able to grow to grow mouse embryos for about 24 to 36 hours. So you can grow the mouse from day seven to eight and a half or from nine to 10 and a half, but not more than that, not continuously. They could never start from pre-gastrulation stages. They could never capture full gastrulation and definitely not one that will continue to become organ uh, competent. The process was extremely inefficient and most of the embryos were abnormal that they were receiving. But still this was very, useful. For example, Rosa Beddington did uh, injection mapping to show that there is ectopic axis or head formation uh, by injection. So for that, you know, if you want to have an ectopic entity, you don't really have, a, have to have a very normal, well-organized embryo. And what we are after, as I mentioned, trying to have very efficient, normal embryos for very extended periods of time. So there we started thinking to approach this and design, let's try to think of make a kind of a ventilation machine, but we don't want to ventilate the mouse lungs, but rather to ventilate the environment of the mouse embryo, and started slowly fleshing out different compartments. So you can think of the incubator where the embryos are gonna grow, the controller where we control the different parameters, the gas mix box where things get mixed and measured and, and, and equilibrated, and then actually then flow, um, flow goes to the incubator. And slowly over the process of seven years, we started realizing what are the parameters we want to look at, and how this is going to work with terms of valves and the steps and so forth and so forth. And we ended up with this uh, electronic regulator, which looks ugly because it's something we make in-house like in our own garage. But it does the job, at least as a first prototype. And just to, just to give you a glimpse of the technicalities and that, that you know, this is, you have the gas mixing box to the, connected to the regulator and how this is set up and how we measure the parameters. And I want to highlight that actually, uh, this is all on our website. Um, everybody can buy this device. We don't make any profit uh, on it, and we just want to help. And we've made a lot of videos, Jove, on the website to really help uh, show how we set up and how to handle uh, the embryos. And after a long process, which actually was about really getting the embryos to grow more days, higher efficiency, higher quality, we learned a lot of important principles. For example, dynamic regulation of oxygen levels at different stages of embryo development. Um, having this, you know, the bottle there that gives humidification, which we added on the embryo, it's, it's very important. Uh, the control of the gas pressure, uh, the atmospheric pressure surrounding the embryo. We try to mimic the atmospheric pressure inside the uterus, which is typically is high because of contractions. Um, a $5 solution, but it's critical to have a diaper or black cloth because the embryos die from phototoxicity. You can work with them for 15 to half an hour, but you cannot leave them all day long under the, the light. And in addition, we had to develop the media in which these embryos are growing. So what do they like to grow? And um, how to extract the serum 
for example, also the types of buffering. HIPIS buffering is very critical. Uh, phenol red is very toxic. Having sufficient glucose is very, very important. And this is what it looks like when the system is working. You can see the embryos are growing inside this rotator bottle on the glass, which allows very good mixing of the gases, and the embryos do not adhere. And you see this is the media we, do, we optimize around them. And you can see here how we start. We start from day seven and a half uh, embryo. One day later, you can see the yolk sac expanding. This is the placenta. You see the first heartbeat. One day later, you can see the head and the, the legs. So it's called embryo turning process. At day three, you can see the blood. So this is the blood of the, the fetus. It's not the mother. There's no contact with the mother. So the metabolic system is kicking in. You can see even there is an umbilical cord, and you can see the ectoplacental cone. And so far, they reached day um, 11, which is about 0.8 centimeter uh, in, um, um, in, in size, and they, then they die from placental insufficiency. And again, um, just to show you that some of the videos we've put to the publication and the website is really how to set up the systems, how do we handle the embryos, how do we feed them. For example, here we're moving them to a new bottle that has fresh media every day, and, and basically that's how we feed them uh, and replenish their nutrition and, and um, where to measure the pressure and how to do it, and, and etc. And then I just want to now show you an example. Although the efficiency we can get is very high, up to 90% from different genetic backgrounds, but this needs to be done correctly. So now... If you look at the control, is the optimized growth conditions that I mentioned to you. You can see what happens if you don't have the correct atmospheric pressure. You will get embryos, but they're abnormal. What happens if you don't have extra glucose? Again, these are embryos, but they're abnormal. Uh, what if you have constant O2? Again, abnormal embryos. So I just show you that these optimizations are the, uh, important to have adequate embryo development and very high efficiency. And then we really started comparing very carefully what we call uh, in utero. So this is the control growing inside the uterus and ex utero. And here you have the embryos before dissection of the yolk sac and after dissection of the yolk sac. And you can see that they have normal size development. There is no delays by different parameters that we've looked at. And this is now published. We did this very careful analysis of what we call atlas formation of staining for the different markers at the different days to really show that things are being expressed at the right time and at, at, at the right uh, day. But this wasn't enough for us because day seven and a half is late gastrulation. So you could argue, well, you still need the uterus to start gastrulation, and only then you can extract the embryo and grow it outside the uterus. So it was very important for us to start from pre-gastrulation, which is day five and a half in development, and there, if we take these early embryos and put them in the roller culture, you can see you get abnormal embryo. It doesn't work well. So there, we use static conditions. We use these plates that are used typically in IVF treatments. We use the same media we developed. And you can see, actually, we can get gastrulation from 55 to 65 in static conditions with efficiency as above 90%. It's a very, very robust process. And you can see here, we can image this. So this is an embryo that is labeled with red. And we can use some kind of cadherin glue to just tether the placenta to the side and do live imaging. And here you can see just the impressive growth of not only the embryo, but also the yolk sacs, the membrane around it. Here you'll see the primitive streak, the somite formation, and the head formation, so forth. And this is, again, starting to touch on the advantages that we have when we're doing ex embryogenesis, which is of live imaging to learn about different processes. And then next was really to combine, to go from day five and a half until day 11, so which is combine the static phase with the roller culture phase, 
And you can see we can go from day six and a half to day 11 or the, from day five and a half to day 11. Um, and again, these embryos that we get, we can get uh, normal embryos and normal in size that have a lot of uh, the normal qualities. If you look just by the naked eye at the end of the process, so you can see here, this is about 0.8 centimeter embryo just inside the bottle. This is the heartbeat with the blood. This is the, the brain and the live embryo inside um, this bottle. Again, we've done a lot of analysis to show that they are normal, expressing the right markers and the right stage, um, that they have no developmental delays. And again, these are natural embryos grown ex utero. And to have an unbiased way, of course, we do single-cell RNA-seq analysis to really look at the expression patterns. And you can see here that the natural embryos uh, in uh, ex utero versus the in utero one, you can see that the green and the purple are extremely one over the each other. So the ex expression patterns are very, very, very similar. If we look at the abundance of the different cell types, you can see that very few of them have just slight deviation in their abundance. Um, and if we look at the gene expression pattern for each population between uh, the, uh, in utero and ex utero, you could see that all of them actually are uh, are nearly identical, but actually we already see why the embryos are dying. So you can see here the cardiomyocytes and the red blood cells are already showing some kind of stress signal. And this is because the embryos die what's called hydrops fetalis. So it's the placental insufficiency where you get edema around the heart. The heart is working very, very hard. It makes a lot of red blood cells, tries to compensate, but then it fails. And actually we're seeing that with the gene expression pattern. So with that, basically what we show uh, that, um, as you notice, I intentionally don't use the word artificial uterus, first because it's cheesy, second because I think I want to give the credit to the embryo. And I think that the embryo has the self-organizing capability to grow, and that the uterus is an excellent metabolic support, but the morphogenesis can be done autonomously by the embryo and does not need the uh, uterus. As a side note, I just want to mention, as I told you, we're trying to build a research platform. It's not about only just growing embryos. So we want to be able to manipulate the embryos and follow them over time. And I'll just give an example of some protocols we developed. So we want to be able to rapidly uh, mutate the embryos and follow the same embryo over time. So we've developed a protocol where we can take a concentrated lentivirus and inject one microliter in the proamniotic cavity at day five and a half, at day six and a half. They're extremely resilient to the micro-injection. Um, you can see here, we're, this is, we're doing this just with innocent GFP virus. The embryo gets labeled. There is no drop in the efficiency and the normal development of the embryo, so we can really have rapid mutagenesis. We now, of course, do this with CRISPR and get look at double or triple mutants of, in development happening uh, in the embryo. Another example of perturbation we do ex utero, it's what is called... Um, um, uh, brain electroporations. So typically you can take the mouse uh, that is grown, uh, electroporate one side of the brain with a plasmid, in this case just GFP, and then follow over days the, the development of the brain outside the uterus. And you can do this at much earlier stages if you were uh, compared to what you would have been able to if you're doing this on in utero embryos. And lastly, just to show you about, although when we're in the roller culture stage, it's hard to image the embryo, but the media that we've developed, at every stage we can take the embryo, mount it on a confocal microscope, and do in total confocal living for, uh, imaging for one and one and a half days, and look at the surrogate organ. So if you're here looking at neural tube, 
And you can see that the neural tube here is open. So we grow the embryo from day seven and a half to nine in the roller culture. Then at day nine, we put it on the confocal microscope. And we can, for one day and a half, just image how the brain tube just does this known zipper kind of movement and how it closes. And just shows uh, some power of, of, of combining imaging with these techniques. Finally, just to give an example of the advantage of now we have a more controlled ex experiment where the environment of the embryo um, uh, happens, uh, we can show that we can take the embryos and use teratogenic drugs. So we can use advalproic acid, you can see it on the right, which is known to cause uh, neural tube defects. And within 24 hours, you can see that the embryos are developing open neural uh, tone defects that are um, developing there. So just to summarize this part, just working on ex utero growth of natural embryos, you can uh, hope I've convinced you that there are a lot of advantages for basic research, for knowledge, which involves you know, trying to look at cell fate, mechanics of development, ex uter uh, extra embryonic tissues. Uh, and as well, when we combine this with imaging, we want to learn and really increase our knowledge on organ development. But um, this, of course, raises a lot of questions of what we would like to do next. Of course, can we extend the time periods of which we are growing these embryos, perhaps start from an early pre-implantation blastocyst? Can we do this in other models? For example, the rabbit. The rabbit is a small model that has a similar shape to the human embryo. Should we try to do this with human blastocysts, with excess embryos? But what really most interests us is really go back to the initial process where I asked you about what about what we call synthetic stem cell-derived embryo models. So first I want to clarify, when I say synthetic, it's not, of course, done from plastic, but it is stem cell-derived from aggregated stem cells. And there's been really great work done by different groups who've taken early stem cells, for example, placental stem cells and embryonic stem cells, and aggregate them, for example, Nicholas Rivron, um, on the right, you can see these blastoid models, which mimic the blastocyst. However, these models, when you put them inside the uterus, they do not develop to make an organ-filled embryo. Other groups, for example, the Magdalena Zernica Getz group makes these X-cylinder aggregates that early on. But this field, I would modestly say, was stuck because if you couldn't grow a natural embryo at this stage outside the uterus, how are you going to test a synthetic embryo? So there was no way to know whether these embryo structures can develop further. And I can actually show you that actually they don't. So if you take these aggregates which look very nice, they have morphogenesis like luminogenesis and so forth, but they were grown in different media. We'd not get into the details what's called IVS with the synthetic serum. If we actually take these structures and put them in our conditions, you will get these empty yolk sac that they don't have structure. So we had to go back and ask, can we make what stem cells should we start with even to do this experiment? And just again to get everyone on the same page, the early embryo typically has three compartments. One is called the embryo proper. So this is like the net embryo, basically in blue. You have the trophoblast stem cells, which is going to make the placenta. And you have the primitive endoderm cells, PREs, which is going to give you the, the yolk sac. And we got really a clue from our work in human stem cells is that we noticed that human naive stem cells can quite easily become trophoblast stem cells or primitive endoderm cells in the petri dish without needing to overexpress transcription factors, which is typically the case in the mouse. What I'm saying, actually, the human suggested that this is, might be easier. So this gave us a clue. Perhaps when we go back to the mouse, we should try and start everything from the naive pluripotent cells. 
And we thought the idea is, can we take naive pluripotent cells, split it into three pools, one is unperturbed, we project it will make the embryo proper, one we're going to nudge somehow for 24 hours to become towards trophoblast stem cells, the other one we're going to nudge somehow to become primitive endoderm over 24 hours, put them back again after 24 hours, and then put them in the same device and the same conditions that we know that they can support natural embryogenesis, and ask, what will we get? Will we get more sophisticated differentiation? Will we get structures that are very similar to, to embryos? We didn't know at the time. And then we really started, uh, this is now published, we started really the idea in these processes, you want this pluripotent cells to quickly and efficiently become trophoblast stem cells or primitive endoderm cells. So we've optimized conditions. For example, we overexpress CDX2 in the mouse to push them towards trophoblast stem cells. We overexpress GATA4 to make them primitive endoderm cells. And we've done reporter lines to see what is the media that really efficiently and quickly pushes them towards trophoblast. So for example, you're looking here at L5YFP reporter. So it's a reporter for trophoblast stem cells. And you can see that in the conventional differentiation media on the left, the efficiencies of differentiations are quite low. But if we add a molecule called LPA, which makes hippopathway nuclear, YAP becomes nuclear, which is known to happen in development, you can see much stronger, much faster differentiation happening. And the other thing which we noted, please note, that if we start with naive pluripotent cells in the top row, we can get trophoblast stem cells. But if we start with prime pluripotent cells that are more advanced, you get, don't get any trophoblast stem cells. So that was another advantage that's saying about naive pluripotent cells are very, very important. And in fact, they are totipotent. And that it's not very true to say that they've completely lost the potential to give rise to the extra embryonic membranes. Now, how do these cells organize? So we did an experiment where we labeled them, uh, the, the projected trophoblast stem cells are gonna be in red, uh, the embryo proper cells are gonna be in blue, and the primitive endoderm cells are gonna be in green. And here you can see my mouse. And then you can see, for example, here we're looking at, this is the OCT4 staining, which is the epiblast, and you can see that this is the blue. This is exactly where it's supposed to be. You can see that the trophoblast cells have the TFAP2C staining. This is where the red cells are. The primitive endoderm is on the outside, and it has, um, this is SOX17 staining, and you can see the green. So in 30% of the embryos, we can see that the cells, all starting from the same population, are properly sort sorting in the different compartments. And then I will not get into it. We had to do a lot of technicalities or some shaking, what is the volume, so forth. Everything is published, but I want to emphasize technicality is very, very important for this. And I think this is the, the most important slide because it shows the power of the phenomenon we are dealing with. And because when we do this, we start with an aggregate of 25 cells. Until day three, they're just growing. Perhaps you would think it's just only a clump of cells. But at day four, you can start to see that actually there is some structure organization going on. And now we're starting to compare to the day five and a half mouse embryos. If you look one day later, you still realize, well, you have an epiblast. You have a primitive streak happening. One day later, you have the amniotic fold, amniotic cavity, the exocellum. Day seven is dramatic. You will see the yolk sac suddenly appear. You have a placenta in these stem cell-derived embryo models, similar to day eight in the mouse embryo. 
And so for the most we've reached so far is day eight and a half in development, where you can see an embryo-like entity engulfed with this yolk sac. The efficiency uh, of this process is about, um, the success of day eight is about half percent. Uh, it's very low, but because we can start with many clumps, we can grow the cells by the million, you can see now you're seeing the same system, the same media, and we can get by the hundreds, basically day eight and a half equivalent, uh, what we call them SCMs, stem cell derived embryo models, only from naive stem cells outside the uterus. So it's no sperm, no egg, no uterus basically used in these conditions. If you look closely now, you can see that anatomical structures such as the heartbeat in these SCMs, you can see the valves, uh, you can see the neural folds, you can see the umbilical, uh, the allantois which is going to be the umbilical artery, you can see the ectoplacental cone. If you look also uh, carefully at the yolk sac, so the first blood stem cells developed not in the bone marrow, in but actually they developed in the yolk sac. So these are the kind of the, the clouds that are there, and you can see this vitiline circulation. And we validated by fax analysis, natural versus synthetic HSCs, basically, in these embryos, and they have the correct, the same expression markers of surface antigens. They can make in methylcellulose blood colonies. We've actually done now bone marrow transplant in adult mice, and they just function just as the natural embryo-derived cells. So we've done a lot of stainings, and you can see here the natural embryo versus the SCMs. Um, and just to show you that the markers are expressed in the same sequence. And you can see eventually at the end, you can look at the structure, you clearly see the head folds, you can see the heart, you can see the tail bud. You have, the, of course, the axis formation. But I show this image actually intentionally because this is not the best embryo we've got, but I want to show you that more, all embryos have some defects. For example, if you look at the neural tube, it's a little bit too curved, it's a little bit drugged. Some of the embryos have a very hard, uh, bigger heart or a bigger head fold. And we believe that's why they can't go further. However, it's undoubtedly, this is an embryo-like structure that has all the axes formation. And I want to emphasize that we are not dictating the morphogens, that the embryo model is secreting the morphogens and the cells that are driving this. This is unlike where conventional differentiation, we give the BMP and the wind and so forth. So this is talking about self-organization. And just to show you a couple of examples, we really uh, characterize them again side by side. You can see um, the neural fold formation in these SCMs. You can see the somite formation next to the neural tube, just like the natural embryos compared. If you look at the brain structures, you can see the neural fold. You can see the forebrain formation marker, which has never been seen in any models before, midbrain formation. Um, the notochord formation, you can see here with the specific markers, the tail bud. If we even more carefully look at the neural tube, you can see patterning. This is with the floor plate, uh, just getting the FOXA2 staining in the anterior part. And if you just do H&E staining on different models, again, you can see very similar cavities, whether it's the gut lumen, the foregut lumen, the endocardium of the heart, and so forth. And again, really getting a lot of the complexity of the differentiation. Another um, thing that I want to emphasize is that we are able to get primordial germ cells. Uh, these are cells that are found in the posterior part of the embryo, and they're actually induced by the trophoblast stem cells. So the fact that we are getting them, this is another hint that we, our induction protocol for trophoblast cells is adequate, and this is something that uh, was observed only in our models. 
If we do single-cell RNA-seq analysis, and we've done even single embryo single-cell RNA-seq analysis for these comparisons, you can see here on the left, uh, this is the manifold you will see for the natural embryos that, are, um, uh, uh, that we get the samples. And all SEM models that we get with different combinations, you can see that they have the same manifold distribution. There are no cell types systematically missing. There are no unidentified aberrant cell types. There are no residual pluripotent stem cells. And if we look actually per each cell type, uh, how much is the correlation between per lineage in the SCM versus the natural embryo, you can see for all clusters, the scores are over 0.95. One of the clusters is only 0.6.4, which is only the outlayer spongiotrophoblast of the outside of the placenta so far. And I must say, we actually also see that with natural embryos grown outside the uterus. So this is something probably because there is no interface with the maternal uterus in there. And we've looked, just to say very carefully as well, at the different compartments of the placenta. And um, here you're looking at the in utero embryo, ex utero natural embryo, and the synthetic embryo. And these are the different lineages. And we can see both the chorion formation from the ES cells and the ectoplacental cone. So we have an ectoplacental cone. We have just one cell type is not fully mature. Um, uh, and it's very important to highlight. It's not that the entire ectoplacental cone is missing. And with that, I want to summarize and just say what this is telling us that naive pluripotent stem cells, even in mouse, um, can de facto give rise to all cell compartments, uh, including extra embryonic tissues. You can get gastrulation even from stem cells, uh, captures properly ex utero, um, and you have adequate organ and, and cell formation. And there are a lot of questions, of course, about this. Um, and we're also happy that um, um, we also provided this platform to the Zernika Getz lab, and we're authors of their paper, and they achieved similar results uh, by reaching day eight and a half, really validating the, the, the system and the quality of the cells of getting these models, which is, I think is very important because it's, it's not the easiest protocol. And just touching a little bit on the discussions that are going to be here, and we're, we're Raising the question one day, is this a legitimate and possible technically way of looking at this as a universal differentiation protocol? Instead of us dictating the sequence of morphogens to get the different cells, we can start with a single cell type that we get from the patient after his or her consent, make naive iPS cells, grow them in these special devices for the minimal number of days, and extract some cell types that we can expand perhaps even more and transplant them. There are some benefits for this. Again, genetically matched cells, no need for immune suppression, no donated oocytes, no fetal material from abortions, or no blastocyst donations, which has some advantages uh, that we deal with. And just kind of <laughs> to leave you with, with the idea, and, um, we look at these images from uh, René Magritte, who's a famous uh, surrealist painter with this... Um, made this painting called The Treachery of Imaging, um, or it's also called This is Not a Pipe, which raises the question, you know, is this a pipe, a real pipe, or is it just something that he drew? And we are also actually not sarcastic, but we are asking, we say, this is not a mouse embryo. Should this be considered an embryo? When this should be considered an embryo? And, 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 and these are the things I guess we're going to be uh, discussing. Uh, with that, I want to finish in thanking by really my... Uh, uh, hard-working team members, Alejandro Aguilera, a uh, very talented PhD student, 
um, who's now getting a position at, uh, at Janelia at HMI, um, Shadi Taraz and Karin Jubran, Bernardo Oldak, uh, another talented PhD student, uh, done a lot of work on uh, technology development. Our different collaborators uh, in Rambam Hospital and also at the Wiseman, different funding agencies. I want to also a special thank for uh, my uncle and aunt who are here in the, the audience, uh, who uh, influenced me a lot, uh, uh, put me through school, put me through life, and dealt with a lot of my craziness. But um, I'm happy to uh, thank them for everything that uh, I was able to do. And, and when I mentioned the conflicts of interest about that a lot of these technologies are uh, commercialized and we've recently established uh, a company, etc. Thank you very much. Good. Uh, fantastic talk, uh, Anna. That's uh, amazing. Uh, blows our minds. Um, we're going to start with a Q&A, and we have people on Zoom as well, so I'll give a preference to uh, people that are live here. Uh, any questions for Jacob? Hi, fantastic talk. This is Thank very you. exciting science. Uh, I was wondering, for, for the synthetic embryos, you started from the naive cells and you differentiate them into three different ones. Mm -hmm. I was wondering what would happen if you put these naive cells direct into your system without the first kick-in differentiation. Yeah, we've done a lot of these calibrations. Actually, you will not get um, a really kickoff of, of right organization. You will kind of end up getting embryonic bodies, typically ones. Also, if you m reduce any of the three cell types, you will also not get these structures. Also, the cell numbers that are used. Um, and you're touching on the question, I think, uh, if I may expand, like, I think this whole uh, idea of how this sorts into a, a, an egg cylinder, kind of, I think it's the most fundamental question. Uh, and I think a lot of the limits, we grow till day eight and a half. I don't think it's because the defect is at day eight and a half. I think it's actually happening earlier. And I think if we understand the biology of that, I think we can, it's very interesting, and also it will improve efficiency and the quality and the defect. So I think that is really the critical thing where we should zoom in, and we're trying. Uh, yeah. You mentioned this ectoplacental cone. Uh -huh. are, are, how important is it that the nutrients and the gas exchange is happening there, or some of them permeating through the yolk sac? Yeah, no, that's a very good know? question. So, so the, these embryos, whether we're talking about the natural embryos or the SCM, have a placental structure. The question is, how much is it functional? Is it is actually really feeding them? Um, or, uh, or is it only by diffusion through the yolk sac? So we do know that some diffusion happens through the yolk sac. Um, so unpublished work now, we can reach day 13 and a half. And actually at that stage, we slice open the yolk sac. And we can just better um, um, exchange of nutrients. However, if you get rid of the yolk sac at early until day nine and a half, you will get no development. So it's really needed... Uh, until that stages, and um, so that is one. And we don't know uh, how much the placenta is really actually functioning and absorbing. And that's something we are we, we are looking at uh, um, at the moment. That this we know. The thing is that if you remove the placenta, we know that the placenta is needed also to induce some cell development. So, like as I mentioned, the primordial germ cells are induced by the placenta. So you cannot remove it early on because it has another function rather than just nutrition. 
Um, so it's a tricky question. But I guess in, in general, I think it also brings one of the, I think the very interesting aspect of these systems. I think they have um, gives us better tools to look at extra embryonic tissues, what they're doing and when they are needed and for what. Also the mechanics, of course, which I think things that have been very hard to study inside the uterus. But uh, we don't know, and it's a very relevant question. Hi, Jean. Um, my roots are in embryology, so of course this is really fascinating. I used to work on, on quail embryos, uh-huh. quail neural crest. And the great thing about the using uh, avian embryos was you could see them, and uh-huh. you, could, you could actually have them develop. So I think it's fascinating, I mean, just for that. But the question I have is whether, and in what cases do you think those cells derive from more mature um, whatever they are, artificial, sorry, synthetic embryos, are going to be more useful than the cells that are made from, um, directly from IPS cells. Yeah. So, again, I'm not trying to dismiss one or the other. As I mentioned, when we actually started this, we thought that this is going to teach us about the pathways that are needed and then we can perhaps, you know, find these cytokines that are needed and and combine them with 2D differentiation. But on the other hand, as I mentioned, as you know, 2D differentiation for most cell types is really far from optimal if it's not uh, so. And, I, and, and so it's not that we have them working and we just have the luxury to choose which one we prefer to use. And, and I want to highlight that. And again, I just give the classical example of HSCs. And then again, goes back to the question, why? And perhaps, you know, I think there's development is so complex if you're talking not only about the gradients of cytokines but about the tissue mechanics and we know that organ development is influenced by the placenta and the yolk sac which we don't have in conventional 2D differentiation it's also influenced by neighboring organs it's also influenced by there's this complexity that we don't have in conventional differentiation maybe we can get away without it maybe we can learn what it is and apply it but then it kind of raises the question if I can do it, the way I look at this, I am kind of stand on the side, I get the hell out of the stem cells way, just feed them, make sure they give the gases, and they self-organize. So basically, we're kind of hitchhiking, perhaps, on this self-organizing capability to get these morphogens. And so, so it might be, in a way, we, it's a solution for that very hard problem. And maybe in the end, these two technologies merge, so, so we don't know at the moment. Um, but, but it, as I mentioned, it does raise, like, should this be kind of a, a universal differentiation protocol, or at least an, in, an early induction protocol or not? Uh, we don't know. I really don't know. But we're just sharing the idea, and uh, we're exploring it. Thank you very much for your really amazing presentation. Could you reflect a little bit with us uh, about how we might uh, understand the potential uh, benefits uh, and harms to humanity from this enterprise. Yeah. So let's let's say we're at very 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 early days. Um, but I think it's very important to start having the discussions. That's why we're having this actually preemptively before um, those stages. So first of all, I, I always like to make the comment in science. You know, just you know. You don't ban nuclear physics because somebody can make a nuclear bomb. There's obviously benefits for nuclear physics and space and energy. 
you don't ban virus research because somebody make a, vi a very dangerous virus. Look how much virus research has saved us in terms of COVID. And therefore here, and so there's a benefit and a cost, and you regulate things. Um, and I would say even what we're doing is less dangerous potentially than any of these technologies. So we wouldn't shut the door on any of these uh, approaches. And I think, um, although it's uh, what we're getting now, you know, this, I don't think the SEMs can be considered as equal to natural embryo. But perhaps in the future, perhaps you could argue the differences will narrow. Um, also for the sake of arguments and ethics, it's good to take extreme scenarios. And I think the question in the end is about um, the scenario we look at. If you have a person who is about to die because he can't find an organ donor, does he or she have the right to donate, take their own cells, grow them outside their body, and use them to improve their health? And this is the benefit. And the cost, as you mentioned, there's an ethical cost. Does, should this be considered uh, an embryo? What is the implications of this, uh, of an embryo? Uh, very different. But what I do want to highlight um, that we cannot really grow. This is not the idea to, to make babies and then grow them to term. We, will, we cannot do this. The human embryo is too big. It's going to be too long. And I think it shouldn't be allowed. <laughs> that is not the goal. The goal is about very early stages of embryo development. This is an embryo model. And we learn from it. And the good thing is that I think that we carefully progress and think about this. And also there are... We'll Talk perhaps there are even some experimental way to circumvent unwanted effects of this light of research. And I think the focus we should be is like with, I think undeniably, hopefully, this is very helpful for differentiation, differentiation studies. And uh, we should keep an eye and follow how do we minimize what I call the ethical cost that might come up from this. Uh, let's take one more question over there and then I'll jump into Zoom. Sure. Uh, yeah, again, wonderful work. So um, getting to the, the um, more details about the blood cell development, which, which I thought does look um, really good, and I, I think your point exactly as somebody who's been working on this for 20 years, it, it doesn't work um, for all the reasons you say, though. There, I have seen a talk from a group in Australia who I think has it for all those reasons you described. They, they really fine-tune the, the timing and, mm -hmm. and dosing of different cytokines, right? So, but the, the cells you have there, so you showed yolk sac cells and you said you transplanted them, um, but yolk sac does not, no, are it's, not it's definitive a, HSCs, yeah, right? Yeah, it's MEPs. So, so, so do you get AGM uh, HSCs as well? Have you gotten to that? So, so we, we got that stage in the natural embryos, because in the natural embryos we can reach day 11, we can reach day 13 and a half. So we get that stage, we can even get fetal liver HSCs at those stages. We haven't got that with the SEM model yet. So once we reach that stage, we expect that we will have those cells. And those cells are very relevant because... As you probably know, for example, even fetal liver HSCs are extremely potent uh, cells for transplantation. So we get them from the natural embryos because we reach those stages, uh, but not yet from SCMs. Okay. So, so the transplant studies you said were from? Eight and a half. It's just so MEPs. We compared the eight and a half MEPs from natural embryos to SCMs. So, and do you get some of the, I'm just trying to see if that sort of mimics the limited results you do get, you know, sort of from the other in vitro systems, which is sort of a little bit of myeloid engrafting. Right? 
Yeah, yeah, I mean, you, but again, you, but this is what you get also from natural MEPs. That's you get in development. I mean, you have to reach the fetal level. You have to compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges in that, in that stage. But the, the natural embryo fetal liver cells, when we compare the ex utero to the natural the fetal liver in utero, when we transplant those into adult mice, we get adult hematopoiesis, as, as has been characterized for livers. Very, very interesting. Great. Right. Um, let's get like some quick questions here on Zoom. Um, someone asking if, if, if is the plan is to take the cells from the embryos and uh, see if they can further mature, for example, into gametes or uh, for fertilization, something like that. Yeah, definitely. I, I do not. And that's why I a little bit touch on the PGCs. But um, you know, we wonder. You know, you can get whole gonads uh, at, for example, day eight and a half or twelve and a half. There is a question: Can you take a gonad and then? grow it more, 30 days, for example, in humans alone, and get oocytes. That is something we are um, looking at, uh, definitely. Fantastic. Another question. Have you investigated the epigenetics of these embryos, genomic imprintings, X chromosome inactivation? Yeah. So we've looked, um, we've looked I don't want to say superficial, we looked quite well, um, and uh, particularly in the natural embryos grown ex utero, and, and they look very, very, very normal. Uh, regarding the SEMs, um, we're like a bit kind of waiting to reach later stages, like day 11 and a half, to kind of dig deeper on uh, and really carefully character before this one. But what we've seen so far, it looks very, very good. So don't, don't have, they don't seem to have an additional um, loss of imprinting and that, and that part. So whatever, for example, we'll not get into this, but um, actually the ESs, when they're grown in naive conditions, they can get some abnormalities. But whatever abnormalities you have them there, they stay in the embryos, not that they happen during the embryo development stage. All right, I'll, I'll finish with one question that I, I think it's interesting here. What is actually the, um, uh, what initiated the organization of the embryo, the very early signals? Do we know that? I don't think we know that. <laughs> that is, uh, thank you. Thanks.